The Courage to Lead, episode 164. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Jennifer Fondervey. Jennifer is the founder and chief humanity officer of Day One Ready, a consultancy that advises forward-thinking business leaders, owners, and C-suite executives on how to prepare for and manage the people challenges of business transitions, particularly mergers and acquisitions. As a Fortune 500 C-suite marketing executive who led teams through three separate multi-billion dollar acquisitions, Jennifer authored The Satirical Survivor's Handbook, Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions, which became a number one new release on Amazon. Her Now What? audiobook was launched in March of 2021 to similar acclaim. She shares her M&A expertise uh, as a contributor to Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Inc., Forbes, and Thrive Global. She's a sought-after podcast guest, keynote speaker for conferences and associations, and has advised numerous small and mid-market, as well as Fortune 500 companies, on how to prepare for and lead through the multiple transitions of the M&A deal journey. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Harlan. This is awesome. My background is organizational change management, so I know just day-to-day. spirits. Yes, (laughs) just the day-to-day stuff that businesses go through. There's a lot of things you, you know, managers have to see and understand and prepare for and communicate. You throw M&A in there and it's a different ball game altogether. It's a tsunami of change. (laughs) Absolutely. The waves just keep coming. Yeah. And you've been through that multiple times and you help prepare businesses for it. So uh, yeah, definitely going to come back, pick your brain on what that's like for the employees, as well as for the managers, for the companies and stuff, how you work with them and everything. Um, but before we get into those juicy details, I've got some icebreaker questions that I ask every one of my guests. Uh, listeners know the these are the questions. Part, right? Yes. <laughs> these are the, I, my, I don't quite have the beard that he had, but uh, so yeah, these are the questions from the uh, TV show Inside the Actor's Studio, where James Lipton asked these questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. Wow, so okay. Jennifer, if you're ready, question number one, what is your favorite word? Pamplemousse. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I'm half French. My okay. father's French. And pamplemousse is the word for grapefruit in French. Excellent. And I, it's just, it's like one of those random words that doesn't sound anything like the fruit. Right. It you know, there's no equivalent that I can find. I don't know, maybe in Spanish, but I just love that word. Pomplemousse. Perfect. Love it. All right. What is your least favorite word? Dirty. <laughs> what turns you on? Oh, wow. The list is so long. A sunset. Nice. What turns you off? Narrow-minded people. What sound or noise do you love? A baby's laugh. Mm. What sound or noise do you hate? 
a baby's cry. (laughs) (laughs) Except, except when they're your own and you know, they'll, it'll somehow they'll get out, they'll move, they'll get, they'll grow out of it. All right. What is your favorite curse word? Well, this goes back to my pomplamous merde. My father, <laughs> my father would swear in French all the time, and uh, and I would go to school and I'd say merde, merde, merde. You know, like that. The teacher. I think the parent-teacher conference was a lively discussion with my parents. <laughs> yeah, pardon my French. Um, so, okay, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Oh well, it's long past me now but I would have loved to have been a Broadway singer. Yeah. Uh, that, that wasn't in the cards, uh, but- There's still time. Uh, no, I don't, I don't have the voice or, or the depth, con- the breath control that's required, uh, but I just thought that would have been amazing. Nice, very cool. What profession would you not like to do? Uh, garbage collector. Hats off to them. It's got to be done. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, Welcome. Thanks for the work you've done. All right. Thanks for those answers. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about how you got your start, uh, who you work with, how you help them. We're going to talk about your book. And, um, and the, the cool characters that you created in your book to explain the whole uh, merger acquisition right process. And uh, at some point, we're going to come back and talk about courage and leadership. All right. So yes. listeners, we'll talk about all of that and more right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back. My guest, Jennifer Fondrene. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Um, so yeah, mergers and acquisitions, those can be challenging under normal circumstances, but they can also be devastating, I think, for the employees, for the morale, for productivity and everything like that. You've been through it a few times. Talk to me about your experience. How did you first get involved in mergers and acquisitions? That's a very circuitous path. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I had never intended to do what I'm doing now, but I went through uh, three separate multi-billion dollar acquisitions and The first one was probably the most jarring simply because it was my first experience with a a merger and acquisition deal. What happens to people post-transaction? I was the head of B2B marketing globally at a company called Navtech, which is a digital map maker, got acquired by Nokia in 2008. I won't bore you with the details other than to say if you followed Nokia at all in the in the press, uh, you know essentially they they had to sell off their handset part of the business, which was ninety percent of the business to Microsoft, and the acquisition of Navtech um, didn't achieve the valuation that it could have. 
Mm. Um, the tough part for me about that, and I know we'll get into that, is I thought it was a great move on Nokia's part. It was a growth strategy, a smart growth strategy play. Yeah. For, for those who know Nokia, you know, it was the uh, handset cell phone manufacturer was number one in mm. uh, 2008. But uh, the acquisition wasn't successful for a variety of reasons. But what I focus on are the people reasons, right? Why lack of attention to how people react to change and how to help them navigate that change led to what I saw as some of the, the major challenges. Absolutely. And then the next two acquisitions I went through, um, similar things occurred. And that's what prompted me to write uh, my survivor's handbook. Yeah, the helping helping employees with a change. A lot of times, companies will put a lot of money into the technical side of things, the legal side of things, and they just assume the employees will just be there. Right. Yeah, they'll come along for the ride. It doesn't always work that way. Right. No. And and you know, I've, I've, I have guested uh, on private equity podcasts as well, and I'll say to them, in addition to the lawyer and the accountant and the corporate development. You need a human capital advisor, someone who can advise the leadership on what happens to people and how to lead through times of change. Um, oftentimes, you'll have the same leadership leadership team still there, but it's a different toolkit for leaders when suddenly you've got a workforce that's never dealt with this level of shift and strategy change when the metrics for success change. You need those leaders to be prepared. And that's what I experienced time and time again. And that's why I work with executives and their leadership teams to prepare them and help them with their frontline leaders as well. Because, you know, you hear everybody quote incorrectly that people hate change. And right. I think that's true. People, people don't mind change. We change all the time. We, are, we talk they about cell phones. Uncertainty. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. They don't like to be changed. They don't like to be kept in the dark and then suddenly like, oh, by the way, Monday, your life is, is totally upside down. They don't, they don't like that. So communicating early, communicate often, right? Explain what's going on, why it's happening. A lot of times employees will go along with it. They'll understand here, you know, this is at a level above my pay grade. I don't understand all the ins and outs, but they've explained why we're doing it. It makes sense to me. I'm here. Right. I think it's when you keep that stuff from the employees, you start losing Absolutely. And I say when I do uh, uh, work sessions with the leadership, one of the things I focus on is, is treat your workforce with respect. Right. I mean, people, I do a top 10 things that executives say and what the workforce really hears. Right. You know, nothing's going to change. And I'll say, if you say that, you, you've already lost your audience because everything's already changed. Certainty around my future. That's changed. Even if you feel the, you know, minutia or details aren't changing, the certainty I had about where I was going, what job and role that I played, who I worked with, all of that is now potentially up in the air. So that's a big part. So Harlan, I'm glad you raised that because there is a communications cadence. It's different in, in this time frame when people are dealing with so much uncertainty and change, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You already know that and talk about it a lot, but I think it's important to emphasize for your, for your listeners, yeah. how unique this, the type of communications needs to be. It needs to be respectful of the people who change is being thrust upon. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we, we always talk to 
executives and say, you know, it's almost like if you woke up one morning and told your family, well, guess what? We're moving to, you know, Morocco. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. (laughs) Why is this the first time hearing of this? What do you, you know, my, you talk to your kids, my school, my friends, the prom, you know, all this stuff, I'm not going to be able to do any of that now. You, it's almost the same way in the, in the company. When you just come out and say, by the way, we've just sold to this company, their management team is coming in, you know, good luck, Godspeed. (laughs) And off we go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, one of the articles I wrote early on, it was while I was doing research for my book, um, we we always assume, I shouldn't say we, but attached to M&A is a lot of baggage, right? People hear the words M&A and automatically all the nightmare scenarios they've ever read about, have heard friends talk about, come to mind. And so the us versus them dynamic is front and center. People expect, oh, there's going to be that friction. What was fascinating to me in the research that I did is how often there was equally an us versus them dynamic between executives and frontline leaders, mm-hmm. because the now the belief is exactly as you just said, frontline uh, frontline leaders are thinking executives have known for this, known about this for a while, and now I'm blindsided. Why wasn't I brought in? Aren't I important to the company's future? Didn't I? Wasn't I worthy enough to be brought in? And, and so automatically, almost overnight, that trust can dissolve that is critical to the functioning of a business. Um, So I I talk about that dynamic as well, because it gets less, it's talked about less, but it can be equally disruptive. Absolutely. And just like I said, in the normal day to day operations of a business, executives make a a decision to change something without talking to their their frontline leaders or the top team leads, right, in the employees. It's like, what are we here for? We do this every day. We know how to make this better. Talk to us. You know? Yeah. And, and, and that's, um, that's a, a, key, a key part of the work that I do is helping leaders understand, you know, what that means to be courageous in, right. these, in these times, right? When you're dealing with so much uncertainty, how to get buy-in, how to get people to feel as though they're contributing as opposed to here's the strategy we defined, now go make it happen. Right. <laughs> That is crazy. All right. So you got your bachelor's degree, double major, right? Political right. science and French, which is awesome. Um, if I wasn't going to be a Broadway singer, I was going to be ambassador <laughs> to France. Those were those were my two big, hairy, audacious <laughs> goals. Clearly, I've succeeded in neither of them. You're an ambassador. My dad, my dad still thinks that ambassador to France thing might work out. but <laughs> There's still time. But no, I mean, you are kind of an ambassador now, but you're on the, on the employee side and on the business side, right? Helping them to see things and understand. Thank you. Things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And then the MBA, global management. Has that, do you think that prepared you for this role you have now? Absolutely. But I didn't know it at the time. That's what's so fascinating to me. So I grew up in a multicultural household um, with a love of, of language and other cultures. I, I was fortunate as a kid, I got to travel uh, because my, uh, my father really wanted both my sister and I to have that exposure. Going to Thunderbird, uh, was just an amazing experience. It's an international business school. So working with uh, and doing projects with so many international students and it opened my eyes, frankly, to one of the things that can be, I don't want to say an afterthought, but isn't, isn't a central focus in the upfront on merger and acquisition work. And it should be is culture, culture alignment, culture assimilation, how company con- company culture on top of if you've got a, a, a global 
deal that's happening. You've got both company and country culture. And it's fascinating to me how my upbringing and then my, my graduate degree really informed how I think about companies and cultures sure. coming together. Yeah, because that alignment is key, right? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. So when you're working with the executives in C-suite and things like that, what, did, what is it that they're struggling with most? Is it the communication piece of it or getting their mind around how it's going to impact? I think it's everything. Yeah. It really, it, it varies. What has been so impressive to me, and I, and I really do see a shift this past year. We're only, you know, somewhat halfway through uh, 2022, but I see a remarkable shift in leadership and sensitivity to employees and the workforce and wanting to be prepared, having the right, exactly as you said, the right mindset. Um, and I think, you know, maybe we can call it a silver lining from the pandemic, but one of the consequences of the pandemic is so much uncertainty was thrust at so many people. All of us faced it to different degrees, but we all faced it. And I think there's now amongst leadership a greater, a heightened sensitivity to, I need to help people get through this. I might not have all the answers, but if I, if I intentionally work on my communication, my empathy, right, inclusion of people and their point of view in how we move forward, all of those things, I think we're you know, it was kind of like, the, oh, well, they're smart people. They'll figure it out. I find a, there's a greater intentionality. Um, at least that's the kind of clients I'm attracting. Right. Uh, yeah. And it gives me hope because yeah. I, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the potential for greater deal success as a result. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't know if it's across the board that everybody is kind of embracing this new environment and stuff. I think some companies are still struggling a little bit with it. Yeah. Um, so, and those those are the companies that will suffer, right? Right, well, the ones who yeah. aren't who aren't acknowledging, you know, the the work that needs to be done to to support their workforce. And I've heard of companies say, "Yeah, we know we need to do something. We're just not going to do it right now." Well, <laughs> what are you waiting when? for? I mean, to now, <laughs> this is the best opportunity to right, to make those changes. Is 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 this a permanent shift? Do you think, or is or are we just? Uh, swing of the pendulum. I've, I've given up on the word permanent. Okay, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I think it's it's evolving, but what gives me hope is it's shifting. Uh, and I think, you know, you're an expert in in change management as well, right? The pendulum swings back and forth yeah. uh, in terms of people embracing how to how to address change and help people through it. Um, I'm an optimistic person by nature. So my hope is that this shift continues in this direction, that people are exactly as you said, that we acknowledge it's not that it's not change that people hate, it's uncertainty. Right. So as much as you can can contribute to bringing certainty and helping people through times of uncertainty, you know, I, I think that's an aspect of leadership that hasn't been talked about enough. It's why I love the 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 fact that your focus is all on courage because it takes courage. It takes Absolutely. courage to to anticipate. Okay, here's how I've got to lead people through this. Well, and how do you lead people through this and and uh, give them some comfort, right, of what's happening when you don't know yourself? A lot of the, those middle managers and stuff they're as as shocked by everything that's going on, right? 
decisions have been made in, in offices or, or corporate you know, boardrooms at a higher level. They don't understand why it's happening. And then you have to turn around and tell your employees, oh, it's going to be okay. Right. That, that's you, tough. You know, it's interesting. And that's, um, frankly, it's the reason I, I recently did a, a TEDx talk and uh, was invited. The theme was all in. And I said, we need to go all in on uncertainty. Embrace uncertainty. And to your point, and I learned this through my own M&A journey, but then also all the interviews that I did for my book, You, the best advice that I received and then I gave to my teams was focus on what you can control. If you, if you, you give too much time uh, to all the noise, and there is a lot of noise, particularly in a merger and acquisition when the strategy can shift multiple times as people are calibrating and figuring out what works and what doesn't. But if you focus on what you can control, right, your talent, being clear on what your talent is, your effort, and your attitude, those three things, that's in your control. If you, if you worry about all the other things that are happening, you will stress yourself out and you'll burn out. Uh, and that I found in my experience uh, was the best advice I could have gotten. And, and uh, you know, I had a, a number of people after the, the TEDx talk who who reached out and said that was so helpful. And they weren't even going through a merger and acquisition. It was just kind of what to focus on. Well, where do you focus? So I, I say, focus on your TEA. Yeah, no, and that's absolutely in anything. Cause that's really all you can do, right? Those things that you have control over. And that's my wife asked me, how do you, how do you stay so calm through things? It's like, well, if, if I can change something, I'll change it. If I can fix it, I'll fix it. If I can't, yeah, what can I do? Yeah. You know, but I learned that the hard way. Uh, I will confess, I was, I, I sound very zen about it now. <laughs> During that first acquisition, I, I was, yeah, I was trying to fix things that uh, one person alone couldn't fix. Uh, and and yeah, I'm, I'm glad I learned that lesson in the, and then the follow on. And, and that's what I share in my book as well. Absolutely. And let's talk about your book. Now what? <laughs> the Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. Talk to me about that. How did that come about? It's it's what started this entire journey. I Harlan, if I what's so fascinating to me is that I'm here talking with you today. I first started just with the idea to write a book because I'd gone through uh, the first acquisition. That's when I first had the idea, but I put it to the side. The second acquisition, the team I inherited had been acquired, but they hadn't really been integrated. And they were going into the office every day with the entire floor of offices empty, like the entire leadership of their company wow. had been had been removed or left. Uh, and it was fascinating to me that they hadn't been integrated. They hadn't really been talked to. It was just, um, I saw the other side and I knew how they felt. And so when I talked with leaders uh, in, in that second uh, marketing role that I played, they'd say, you, you know, how do you lead people through this? You seem to, to know what's required. And I said, well, I've, I've been in their shoes and I know what this feels like. And that's when I really thought, because uh, a few people said, well, you should write a book. Yeah. Jokingly, of course. <laughs> um, or maybe they weren't. Actually, I think one was, was serious. But I, I started to sketch out the, the book idea. And then by the third uh, acquisition experience, and that was a private equity firm that acquired the company I was working at. I thought, okay, we really do need to write this book. But at that time, I just planned to write a book. 
uh, and was still interviewing to be a chief marketing officer for other companies. But uh, too many CEOs kept asking me, well, what are you doing besides the book? And I would always cheekily reply, well, do you know how hard it is to write a book? <laughs> you know, I thought, well, come on, I want some credit for the book. But they were absolutely right. If I wanted the book to get into the hands of people who needed it, I needed to build uh, a business around it. So the that just the nature of writing that book was transformative. It it completely changed the trajectory of my of my career. Nice. And you interviewed a lot of people, right? To I did. your book. Initially, it was just proof of concept. I wanted to see if my experience was unique to me, but repeatedly as I talked to people, the same types of stories and experiences and people opened up their hearts to me. It was a privileged conversation that I had. And it's why in my book, uh, it's, I, I talk about the stages of grief, right? What happens when a company that you have identified with, that you may have been with for a while, you know, you were part of contributing to their best practices. Sure. It's changing and you don't know what it's changing into. You grieve the loss of that company because now the future that you had anticipated is, is in doubt. And I talk about that and that, I would have to say that section in particular, particularly during the pandemic, I had more people reach out to me about that aspect of the book because they said it actually helped them through, sure. you know, the uncertainty well, of the pandemic. I don't, people don't think about the grief process. Like you said, when uh, I worked with one company who had um, acquired several different smaller businesses, the first thing they do is come in and take away all the logos and all the branding and repaint. And now you are part of our team without giving the people a chance to kind of get over that grief. This company I worked for, dedicated my life to, is now gone, defunct. Everything is, is wiped out. Brand new colors, brand new logos and everything. And that can be tough for some people. Oh, absolutely. And I am very thankful. One CEO in particular, who I was talking to for my book, his mother was a grief counselor and I was, I was describing something to him. Uh, he'd mentioned, I forgot what his comment was, but he said, well, you know, it's interesting. My mother's a grief counselor. And he said, I realized that my workforce was going through the stages of grief. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that I had an epiphany moment. I said, ah, that's exactly how it feels, yeah. right? You, you tend to focus a lot on the change curve or the S curve when you're talking yeah. about the, the path. Right. But I felt that the stages of grief was a much better description of, of how a workforce can feel when so much change is happening and they don't, they don't know what the future looks like. Sure. Um, you know, for grief counselors, they call it ambiguous loss, yeah. right? You, nothing's happened, right. uh, but it's what you had imagined your future to be. Yeah. And then trying to help people get through that Yeah, you know, and stay productive and stay, you know, focused and stuff. And that's that's one of the things uh, I think I, I've probably received so many uh, so much of the great feedback I get from executives. It, it focuses a lot on that. Is they one, particularly if they've gone through it and never got that uh, approach, they say, "Oh my gosh, this explains to me why I felt angry right. you know, during that one acquisition." And it arms them to be better leaders for their teams as they help them navigate from denial to acceptance. Right, the stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those are those could be some long stages, right? Oh, and it's yeah. a linear yeah. path. So helping your teams through that um, requires again 
uh, a different toolkit. So that's, again, that's um, when you asked me, I interviewed a lot of people that came out. And the other was um, the change, uh, how people change during times of, you know, uncertainty. You can see a different side of people. Uh, and so I talk about that in the book as well, because so many of my interviewees shared stories about people who they thought they saw a very different side of them that they were not prepared for. Uh, and so I highlight that in the book as well. And that's why I call it satirical because they're all caricatures. There's 10 of them. Um, yeah, talk about some of those characters. Cause I, I love the, the drawings, the images you, you've got for those. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I thankfully, uh, advertising in earlier in my career, I worked with an amazing illustrator, um, or I should say art director, who's an amazing illustrator, Jeff York, um, who brought my 10 personalities to life in ways that I never could have. Um, just the written word. And I made them caricatures intentionally because I don't want people to judge. Like I've had enough sure. times where people say, oh my God, I think I was this one. <laughs> when, I, when I speak to groups and, and, and leadership or associations, I do a part of my speech is focused on, well, let's bring some of these characters to life. And, um, you know, I've had more than one time where somebody says, as they're reading a description of who the character is and they're trying to figure it out, they go, mm -hmm. oh, this is me, right? Yeah. Everyone know, everyone seems to know a know-it-all. Absolutely. Right? The person who squashes collaboration because they're always, oh, well, we did that. We've tried that. You know, no, 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 That's That won't work, right? They they just, their, their whole aura is about being smarter than everyone, knowing it all. And that can really undermine what you're trying to achieve when you're bringing two companies together, right? You need to drive collaboration and a know-it-all can really um, stop that. So I talk about that personality in particular because you've got to curb that. And if you've been one, you know, I give a, a section of the book about here's how to check yourself yeah. um, because you can really um, ruin any opportunity for collaboration and what the deal was meant, you know, meant to achieve. So that's that's one of the characters that gets um, asked about a lot. The other one, um, everyone seems to have a favorite, but the former rock star tends yeah. to be very popular. Everyone knows a former rock star. That's the person before the deal. They have the Midas touch, right? Could be your could be your head of sales, your chief technology officer, your head of product, or it can be an up and comer, right? Somebody says, "Oh, that person, he or she is going to go far." But when the metrics for success change, which they inevitably do post-transaction, they, they have a hard time pivoting. And, you know, they're, hey, this is what got me here. Why change? This is what made me successful. But if they don't pivot, um, they can stay stuck mm -hmm. and then become a former rock star. And so uh, I talk a lot with executives because everyone seems to have had particularly when I'm dealing with private equity uh, or CEOs, people who they thought would thrive and were great, but really had a hard time changing because the metrics for success had changed. Yeah. Um, and they were having a hard time accepting that. Uh, and so I talk a bit about how do you, how do you help that person, you know, acknowledge the past and the contributions they made but look to the future and how their expertise can contribute to that. If they can't make that pivot, um, you know, it's time for them to, it's time for them to move on. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's tough, especially if somebody has a lot of time in with the company. They maybe help define some of those operating procedures. And now this new company comes in, you're, you're merging basically two families. Here's how you do things. Here's how we do things. Trying to come to the middle. And this is the way we're going to do things in the future. If it's totally different, that person thinks, wow, all that work I did is gone. Right? Yeah, All that work hard. that I put in. Yeah. It's hard. Listen, I uh, I went through that as well in my first acquisition as the head of B2B marketing, you invest so much of your time and energy into building equity around the brand. And then when the name changes and you you don't even get to weigh in completely on what that name changes into and you know how it's presented in the marketplace because now you've got so many more people, it can be destabilizing. It's probably the nicest uh, way that I can put it. So you have to separate yourself from that. But it's difficult because the best employees are the ones who invest, who are passionate about your company, right? And now you're telling them, well, the name's changing, the logo's changing, here's your new identity. If you don't, if you don't prepare for that and acknowledge that this is, this is a lot that you are asking of those employees and help them to navigate that, you, you won't achieve the, uh, the valuation, um, at least in an M&A, right? The, the same applies, and you and I talked about this before, leadership change, organizational mm-hmm. change. We're talking about similar dynamics. These same personalities um, can emerge during those times as well. Yeah. yeah. I talked to one guy a year or so ago. Their company decided to move their headquarters to another state, mm. and they just assumed the employees would come with them. It's like, we all have lives here. We can't just uproot. And they couldn't understand why people were so upset and like thought process guys. Yeah. Yeah. What are the impacts going to be? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the tough part is as much as I, when I work, you know, my sweet spot is uh, in, in mergers and acquisition, it's when the the deal is pretty much done and I'm helping the leadership to anticipate what to expect and how to lead through that, particularly those first three months, right. When, everyone's dealing um, with change. But more often than not, I'll have uh, uh, leaders, executives come to me after mm-hmm. they've, they've started and they realize, ooh, we should, have, we should have done this earlier. Can you help us? Because now, you know, we need to get things back on track. But because we didn't do this pre-work, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're dealing with a lot of fallout. And right now with the great resignation, you can't afford to lose talent. And mm-hmm. so- you know, as much as I preach, the earlier you have me come in, the better. More often than not, I'm I'm just trying to help leaders and their frontline. I, I emphasize frontline because they're the ones who are really, you know, they've got the double job, mm-hmm. their day job plus the integration and and trying to figure things out. So um, that's where I typically come in to help them. Yeah, that's it's scary just thinking about it because there is so much going on. At the time, not only are you concerned about your own career, your own, you know, business, right. your own life, all the people that are responsible to you and looking up to you, you know, the big, you know, deer in the headlight eyes, what's happening, right? Right. And, you know, you you make a good point because, um, again, going back to courage, what's hard in these scenarios is oftentimes you you aren't sure how to be courageous, right? Because there's so much change and, and one one particular type of courage that I, I found can be difficult going through a merger and acquisition is challenging status quo. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. right? Or challenging, right? When someone gives you the strategy and says, this is what we've decided, now go make it happen. If you're the frontline leader and you say, well, I don't know who crafted this strategy, but you didn't you didn't really consider the time frame, the resources, the budget, the manpower, right? So the people who actually do the work are now getting the strategy right. secondhand potentially. So it's it it requires, and I again, this is why I, I love working with executives, is the type of courage that's required is as leaders, you know, bring your people in mm-hmm. as soon as you possibly can so they are invested in the strategy. And, and it allows them to see, okay, right, my expertise is valued and I can also help, um, you know, figure out how to make this successful quickly. That requires sure. courage. And then I also say foster challenge. Tell people this is, you know, when you're talking to your teams, here's what we, we have crafted. This is the strategy. This is the roadmap. Let's poke holes. I want to mm-hmm. hear from you all. What do we think is not going to work? How do I? How do we need to calibrate this um, so that we give it the best chance for success? Because oftentimes people think, "Oh, I better not say anything, right? I don't want to put a target on my back. I, I don't want to lose yeah. my job. You know, things seem uncertain." Um, so, as leaders, you need to demonstrate you sure. want people to challenge you. That takes courage. Yeah, and foster that that culture where people can challenge or ask questions and not feel they're going to get, right. you know, punched. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so or, one of the or like we're I trying said, to talk- target on their back because you exactly. will squash discussion. Sure. People see that person says, oh, well, you're not bought in. Right. You know, get on board. Right. I saw that happen way too many times if Lots. people challenged. But then other yeah. people, well, I'm not going to say a word. Exactly. Or very quietly, they're submitting their resumes to other places and they just exactly. leave without- yeah sharing the knowledge they have without, you know, so. But one of the types of courage we talk about is intellectual courage. And I think that's kind of one of the ones you're talking about, the, having the courage to set aside your long-held beliefs and and the knowledge you currently have for that new knowledge that's available. You know, Oh, that was a hard one for me to get to. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, from an executive standpoint or a leader standpoint, think about it, having to say, I don't know. And then going to your employees and say, you know, how can we do this? And be open enough to to take their their decisions, you know, and and their ideas in because a lot of managers, like you said, they come in and say, "Here, make this happen." And the person yeah. looking at it, going, "This isn't how we do things." Right, yeah. and that's I was that person, uh, particularly in my first acquisition. I thought, "You have no clue what it takes to do my job." Um, you know, we were B two B, they were B two C, so just a different approach to things, uh, and it takes. It takes time, and I and I would say both sides needed to do it, and we didn't. Um, you know, an openness and a willingness to understand. So how do you? So how do you approach this? How? Why? What drives the way you engage with customers? Right. We weren't asking that of of each other, and it's why I say going back to that that culture comment. You need to act like a tourist when you think about culture. Act like a tourist. Ask people. Well. So, how you know, like when you when you go to, let's say you go to France, right? You figure out some key phrases to use, right? You ask them, so how do you say this? Think about, you know, company culture the same way. And right. I saw in my first experience by not doing that, you know, it just, we're constantly um, butting heads. You have to have that willingness, exactly as you said, the courage to be open and say, okay, there's other ways of doing this. How, how do we do it? 
and for the new management team coming in rather than, oh, this is stupid. Yes. Why don't you do it this way? It's like, this is the way we've always done it, our company, right? So yeah, just understanding those those little nuances. So um, where did you find the courage? We talk about, you know, the courage that their comfort zone of the nine to five. And a lot of people say, well, I was I started my own business because I got furloughed or, or laid off or whatever. And so I did this. But a lot of people, if they are pushed out of one company, they just go back into a new company because it's comfortable to be there, have somebody else making the decisions, kind of putting yeah. their neck on the line, right? You decided to kind of do your own thing. Where I did. did. That, where did that courage come from? You know, uh, it's it's interesting. I didn't even think about it as as courageous until you just mentioned it, but I do, I talk about that in my TEDx talk as well. Um, after going through three acquisition experiences, I got tired of questioning my value. I, I got tired of people dictating what my value was and then it seemingly changing overnight because now we were acquired and somebody else was you know, defining the metrics. And I talk about how to navigate that, but it just, you know, now I have the benefit of perspective, but when I was in it, it was, it was just, it, you, you, it was a, a long journey every time of trying to navigate it, which is why now my passion and mission is to help people to have the courage, to give them courage, to give them a handbook that says, here's what you can expect, stages of grief, changes in personality, Here's how to navigate it all. This is how to make it work for you. And, and for me, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, I regret that one of the things that gave me courage, frankly, was a health scare. Um, I thought I had breast cancer. Thankfully, I did not. But while waiting for the results, I said to my husband, I'm not sure that I'm leaving the legacy that I want to. I'm not sure that the mark I want to leave on this planet is to be the best CMO. Right now, no disrespect, because I worked really hard to get to be a chief marketing officer, but I'd had enough people. I was in the middle of researching the book, talking to CEOs, and they had continually asked me, what are you doing besides the book? And it just all kind of came together in that moment. And I thought, I've got to, I've got to give this a try. I can't straddle, you know, interviewing for another role, finishing the book, wondering, oh, maybe I should do something around this. And I'm enormously grateful to this day that I have a wonderful partner in my husband. And he said, you need to do this. You were meant to do this. I can see it. I've never seen you so passionate about something. Um, to which I jokingly said, well, just so you know, you know, we're not, we're not just tightening the belt. We're going to go down some pant sizes as I figure this out. <laughs> so thankfully for me, he was, he was on board to, uh, to give it a go and, you know, that the, the benefit I have is the gap that I saw and how companies support their employees through this traumatic change was a gap. Wasn't, wasn't just my experience. And enough CEOs said, when you, you know, when you open up your business, uh, we need your help. Uh, and so I'm thankful, but you're right. It took courage to do that. I think if I'd really thought hard about it, I, I would have, I, if I'd known how difficult it would have been, now it seems courageous, but you know, back then it's probably just was, was crazy. Um, but I, I have no regrets. It's what I was meant to do. Sure. But uh, do you have entrepreneurs in your family that you kind of no. learned or got that trait from? No? You know, actually, no, I, I, I should, that's not true. 
both my mom and dad, um, my mom was, my mom was a fashion model in Chicago. Uh, and she started a company, uh, personal branding. Um, but, but for the inside and outside, she was very focused on, you need to, you need to really know yourself and be clear on who you are in order to have the right version of you presented, which I thought was brilliant. And I'm so thankful I grew up with her being that way, because it, it just reinforced for me, it's inside and out. And my dad also, you're right, you know, I'd never thought about that, but my dad actually um, imported cars um, from Europe. He's French, so he was bringing in cars. And then unfortunately, I think government policy changed and it made it way too expensive to do. Um, but he did, he did uh, have a go at being an entrepreneur as well. Nice. Very cool. So if, if you were to talk to some of your executives now about a type of courage that they need to step into, what would that be? What kind of courage would they would help them during this process? It's, it's something that I think either in one of the articles you've done or shared or in our conversation, um, for me, moral courage is, is, it's the foundational courage that that courage and and uh, I, I acknowledge too. There was some courage that I I I got over time. Yeah. Uh, what I think helped me through so much was having moral courage when an injustice is done, not just looking and saying, "Well, who's going to step forward? Who's going to who's going to say something? Who's going to not just be an ally by it, but an advocate for what mm-hmm. is right." Uh, and that, that I am thankful. Um, and I, my, I give my parents credit, you know, that was just part of, of how I was raised and, it, you know, you can, you can get a lot of arrows slung at you when you're the person who points out injustice. Uh, and this is in the business case I'm talking about, right? We're seeing through, through the past two years, the amount of courage people have had to come forward and say, this is not right. This is, we need to challenge the system. But I talk about, you know, even moral courage in business, stepping forward when you see that how someone's being treated, how someone's being talked to um, and respected or disrespected, that to me is is the foundational courage you need to have. Um, how many folks do you have working for you right now? Uh, I, I have a lot uh, of freelancers. The beauty of the gig economy is uh, a number of freelancers. Uh, I'm thankful uh, through my 25 years in marketing and advertising, I've met some amazing people. Um, I have my uh, assistant, Cindy, who I, I think does 17 jobs at once. Um, but, you know, an opportunity to tap people at different times it's exciting for them because I always have new different kinds of, of projects to work on. Um, and, it, and it allows me to bring a, an array of, of, of expertise to my clients. And then too, you know, similar to I'm sure what you do, you have a, almost a Rolodex, a portfolio of mm-hmm. people who, who can consult and support companies in different ways. Um, one of the I guess the the benefit of starting at zero for me is to build my credibility. I talked to everyone. I spent three years researching the book. There wasn't an association event I didn't go to. And uh, thankfully now I can bring the expertise of all those people that I met to the needs of, of clients who I have. 
because I don't ever want to overplay my expertise. Um, you know, there's a huge aspect to that, particularly in mergers and acquisitions, making that journey successful. So I'm, I'm thankful to be able to tap into um, experts around the world. Nice. So for the folks that you work with currently, people you've uh, worked with before in the past, in the marketing and everything, if I was to bump into any of those folks and ask them what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? I would say um, inclusive, meaning wanting to get multiple points of view, but willing to make hard decisions. Uh, and I will say the, the, the job that tested me the most with that was Navtech. Um, mm. It was my dream job. I moved to Paris, France with my husband and two little kids. Wow. I had an international team. Uh, it accelerated. It was an MBA, <laughs> how to be a good leader. When you are, you know, I was figuring out the go-to-market for digital maps. Uh, you know, now they're ubiquitous. Everybody has a map on their phone, in their car, everywhere. But that wasn't the case back in 2005. And I'm thankful that I had an amazing team that tested me, um, but made me a better leader. Uh, and that would be what I would hope that they would say. Inclusive, but willing to, to make the hard calls. Awesome. And do you have anybody in your past that, you think was a great leader? Maybe you kind of modeled yourself on? Absolutely. Uh, my boss uh, at Navtech, um, her name is Kelly Smith. She's now a CEO. So, you know, for all CMOs out there, CMOs can become CEOs. She was, um, she was spectacular. She led that way. Um, inclusive yet made the, made the hard calls. And I'm thankful um, she rolled modeled that behavior. Um, you know, it, it can, it can, um, doesn't make you always popular, right? Cause somebody's not going to be happy with that hard decision, but you will have the respect of your team and colleagues around you. Uh, if you make those decisions when people know, okay, at least I was heard, right. I think you get more exactly. buy-in and alignment. If at least I feel like, okay, you at least entertained and acknowledged that I had a different point of view uh, I, I, it allows for buy-in I have found faster. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's key. Absolutely. Um, if you were to go back, would you do things the same way? Would you choose the same degrees, choose the same companies to work for to, to build your experience? I, I would, uh, I tend not to live with regrets. Uh, I don't, I don't think that way, but also everything everything I've done led to this moment. And I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Um, but as I look back, even in my advertising career, every, I, I had the benefit of working with blue chip clients. I worked at J. Walter Thompson and Foot Cone and Belding, two multinational um, ad agencies. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the Kraft and the Coors and the Unilevers and Cadbury. Every one of those brands that I'm, has gone through some type of merger and acquisition. Sure. I saw what it did to brands. I saw what it did to teams. I saw what it did to decision-making, you know, how it could kill an amazing campaign, you know, just through the churn and all of that. So I had that perspective. And then as a marketing executive, I went through them myself. All of that gave me an informed view. You add on top of that, my background having grown up speaking French, going to uh, an international business school. So the cultural aspect equally played a role. So it's fascinating. Never would have 
said, oh, when I, when I get older, <laughs> I want to be a human capital advisor in mergers and acquisitions. That role didn't, didn't even no. exist in my head. But, not on uh, the playground? That's not what you envisioned? No, no. Wouldn't have been my smack talk. Um, <laughs> and yet... And yet everything I do now pulls on that expertise. Uh, it's, it makes me very good at what I do now. Absolutely. So what's next? Do you have another book in the works? <laughs> now what? <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I do have to give Jeff York credit. He was my illustrator when we were talking about books because he, uh, my book, uh, he'd been through his own um, merger and acquisition experiences. And he said, you know, I always felt like every time someone would walk into my office, and he would say, and I said, we both said at the same time, now what? Yeah. Right? You feel like you're always doing that. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm 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 happy in the present. I'm 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 excited again. I just so many companies now are realizing the benefit of the work that I do that it sets them up for success. So I feel like the politician who says, No, I'm not running for president, I need to be a good governor, but I I, I feel that way. Like right now I get asked, you know, what's your next book? And I said, I'm, I'm enjoying this book. It's, it's, it's finding its audience and, and it's, um, it's exciting time. So I really want to just focus on making the, this present time as fruitful as it can be. You know, my goal is to reduce the 70, 90% failure rate for M&A. Mm. Uh, even to get it to 50%, I think would wow. be a, an achievement. So um the that failure really, rate is that high? Uh, you know, it's been a, unfortunately, a steady 70 to 90%. This is McKinsey, Harvard Business Review. Now, granted, right, traditionally, a lot of those studies focus on your multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. but it yeah. equally, you know, it has had its struggles uh, in terms of success in that, in that mid to lower market for different reasons, but still, um, you know, I, I work with all small, mm-hmm. mid-market and fortune 500. So that's my, my goal to, to give m a a better chance for success. Nice. Very cool. Well, Jennifer, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking time out. If people want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? What's your, your website? So my website is my name, jenniferjfondreve.com. And I always encourage people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I comment and share a lot on, on LinkedIn and, you know, always welcome uh, new members to the tribe. Uh, <laughs> so please don't hesitate. It's Jennifer J. Fondreve. Perfect. And your book is available off your website? Uh, it is. Uh, Amazon is where um, most people go to purchase it. I'm, I'm available in bookstores as well. But, uh, and I'm also, uh, I have an Audible uh, of the book as well. So I've been told by more than one person, I used my Audible credit to get your book. I loved your voice. So uh, <laughs> I, I encourage people to go to Amazon. Very cool. All right. And the book is called Now What? A Survivor's Guide to Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. Jennifer, thanks again for being on the show. I will have all those links in the show notes and uh, uh, link to your TEDx talk, or I think that's available out there. It's coming soon. So any day now. So when this comes out, maybe I'll have it. I will try to have that link in the show notes. Uh, But listeners, we hope you guys were taking good notes. A lot of good information here. Check out the book, What Now? Or Now What? Now What? A Survivor's (laughs) Guide. Um, 
yeah, and share this with your family, friends, and colleagues. And stick Thank around because there's always more coming. Jennifer, thanks again. Thank you. All right. Coach Harlan saying so long for now.